Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Quick note at the top, about halfway through our conversation, Tyler's mic sound switches in a way that you'll be able to tell if you're paying attention. That is because his audio interface died literally in the middle of our interview. It's honestly not that bad. Uh, Plenty of guests have the quality of audio that he has in the second half on this show, Uh, but the first half is nicer because he is a podcast host and has nice gear, but alas, technology. So... It shouldn't ruin anything. I just want to let you know what a great conversation with Tyler. I know you guys are going to like it. Tyler Burns, pastor, president of The Witness, a black Christian collective, co-host of Pass the Mic podcast with Dr. Jamar Tisby. I'm really, really pumped to be talking with you today, man. 
Dan, it's an honor to be on the podcast, man. I've enjoyed the episodes that I've been able to listen to and I'm really thankful to be here to talk about what we're talking about today. I found you through uh, through Jamar. I interviewed him back in the day for an old show I, I used to host called Depolarize and, right, right. and then found out about your guys' podcast and have been, people might be surprised. I don't listen to a ton of sort of faith-related podcasts. I tend to listen to podcasts about like movies and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. A little break. But when I am listening to faith podcasts, Pass the Mic is one of my favorites, uh, not least wow. because I just get like a look into a different, like a, a different section of the American church, basically the black right. church and the kind of stuff like I love hearing stuff through you guys' perspective. And so I would highly recommend it to anybody who's like, yeah, I would like a couple really intelligent black Christian voices in my life. I got a podcast recommendation for you. Oh, man, that's really kind. Thank yeah. you, Dan. No, you guys do really good work. Now I'm trying to remember the specific thing I saw. Oh, I know what it was. You guys recently had on, is it Brea or Bria Perry? Bria Perry. Yeah, Bria, Bria Perry. Perry. She wrote an article on your site, on the Witnesses site, to the pastors of the TikTok generation. And you guys <laughs> yes. had her on and you interviewed her about it. And uh, it got me interested in sort of Gen Z type stuff and and mm. patrons of this show will have recently heard an episode with Tony and his son where we talk about that article and he's also Gen Z. Wow. But it also got me thinking about the differences between the kind of stuff that young people who are deconstructing, if you will, or just mm -hmm. kind of in, anything in that realm. What are the differences between the predominantly white church and the predominantly black church? And, you know, I could probably write a whole book on the white church and I know almost nothing about what's going on in the black <laughs> church in that respect. And so that's kind of what we're here to talk about and wherever it goes, Absolutely. it'll go. Man, that's a great, it's a great question. And I think it's worthy of thoughtful discussion for sure. Cool. So let's just get a little bit of your background. So I know you've spent at least some time in predominantly black church spaces, but I don't yes. know a ton about your background. So like, give us some background. How much of that time was primarily black or white churches or mixed race churches? I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a complicated question for me, specifically because my journey is a little unconventional. I've only been a member at two churches in my life, but one of the churches, which I now pastor, um, has gone through a lot of demographic shifts. So okay. my father found of a church that I pastored now in 1992, and he founded it with the intention of being a multicultural church. That was the buzzword back then, yeah. multiculturalism. So he was a black man in Mississippi, experienced violent racism, all the above, yet came to faith in Christ at 16 through white Christians. And so immediately felt a call to ministry uh, attended a white church and then got recruited to go to a Bible college down in Pensacola, Florida, which was predominantly white and was also extremely segregated. There was actually a written rule in the college that you could not interracially date. Like there was banned at oh, the school. Bob Jones? Oh, it was no, it's actually Liberty Bible College okay. locally in Pensacola. So it was it, it's in the Pentecostal stream, more like okay. like an offshoot of the Assemblies of God. Okay. So it's, it's totally different from, and I'll get to the kind of the Bob Jones, Pensacola Christian College, Rebecca Book side of things, but. I can't wait. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, I, so I grew up and my father wanted to have a multicultural church emerge both of those parts of the background. But at the beginning, our church was extremely black. 
Then within about five years in, we became a multi-ethnic mega church. So it was kind of a unicorn. It was a black led multi-ethnic or multicultural church, which at that point, early in, you know, the late nineties, kind of early in the racial reconciliation movement, promise keepers, things like that. It was majority white led multi-ethnic churches. Yeah. And so we were 60% black, 40% white, but extremely black in cultural worship styles, teaching, et cetera. But it was still a multi-ethnic church that lasted for about eight or so years, eight to 10 years. And then some things started to break in that. And we became really a predominantly black Pentecostal, just a straight black Pentecostal church. Now, when I went off to college, the second church I've ever been involved in and been a member of was actually, ironically, Thomas Rowe Baptist Church, um, which was founded by the late Jerry Falwell. So I went to Liberty University and I had a very high view of church membership. And so I felt like if I was away from my parents, 13 hours away by drive, that I needed to actually join a church and become a member so I could have oversight and accountability. And so I joined Liberty University, Liberty University's Thomas Rowe Baptist Church for a few years. And so then I went back to my Black church and then was steeped in Black Pentecostalism. So it's kind of been the bookends of my journey have been Black church experience, but then in between multi-ethnic slash white evangelical SBC stalwart kind of church experience as well in the middle there. You called that period of the church that your dad founded that you now pastor that eight to 10 year period of a black led, truly multi-ethnic megachurch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you said as a unicorn, sounds like a unicorn to me um, <laughs> from, you know, from uh, most of what I know about this is from the book Divided by Faith. Sure. Emerson, by David Emerson, Emerson and, and, Smith. and Christian Smith. Right. And so, you know, I, I just, I know a little bit to know that that is not basically how it went. And, and they have, a, they talk a lot about that promise keepers, movement Mm -hmm. and that, you know, basically friendships and individual sin confession will solve systemic racism, that being the kind of basic argument. So you're, but I'm also thinking from like a developmental lens that growing Mm -hmm. up and being sort of old enough to participate and old enough that you would be really impacted by something beyond just sort of your immediate family and friends, like how empowering to witness that for eight to 10 years and what a unique experience you had. It was. So it was interesting because I was in a bit of theological confusion. I talk about this a little bit on Pastor Mike, but so, so our church was very Pentecostal, was a part of the Azusa movement under Bishop Carlton Pearson, who people now know as, you know, kind of one of the original deconstructionists from a black perspective now leading to, you know, kind of a universal, more universal doctrine of inclusion stance. So we were in that and I was attending a private Christian school that founded the Abeka book curriculum. So I was attending the school that created the Abeka book curriculum, which is one of the most popular homeschool curriculum. And that's independent fundamental Baptist. That's Lily White. So I was going there Monday through Friday and was experiencing a Pentecostal experience, which they would have, my schooling would have called heretical right. <laughs> on Sundays and Wednesday nights and whenever we had youth gatherings. But the way in which I became conversant in so many different ecumenical lanes of Christianity and thought process and belief, and the way I became conversant to Black and white perspectives is invaluable and really was the groundwork for how I'm able to have so many conversations with Jamar 
on past the mic and through the witness that can speak directly to these issues because I live them. So I've experienced racism from people within my own church to people at my school, to people in my community. So I can speak to all of those experiences, even if they're unconventional from a typical black Christian rearing, I can speak to all of them. And one of the things that my, I really credit my parents for teaching me is how to navigate remaining yourself in diverse spaces, which became a superpower uh, later on in life as I got older and had to navigate difficult and also spaces of discomfort where I needed to assert who I am. And that's really the work that I'm doing now. And if not for that experience, I don't know if I would have been able to do that work. So I'm thankful for that side of it, even if it wasn't always the easiest experience. Yeah, for sure. But it's also something that I I wouldn't have expected just <laughs> just from a just from like a you know any sort of black pastor growing up in the south involved in church you know if if all I knew about you was that you were involved in church the whole time and that you had gone mm-hmm. to liberty I would not expect that you would have had this also sort of theological, yeah. you know, universalism and kind of all that stuff running yeah. throughout it because of the guy, is it Carl Pearson? Carlton Pearson. Carl Carl Pearson. Carl Pearson. Mm-hmm. Is he the guy that yeah. that movie Come Sunday is about? Yeah. Okay. All right. Exactly. I thought I recognized yeah, So him. he was interestingly enough, the first person who ever prophesied over me. So huh. when I was 12, he was the first person who it's a common thing in Pentecostal churches where someone will speak a word of prophecy over you. Yeah. Something that is intended to reinforce um, something that you find in scripture, that, but it's tailored to your specific experience or a word of knowledge, um, yeah. as some people would call it as well. And so he was the first person to actually do that and prophesied a lot of things I'm actually walking in right now. We were very close. Um, and so as a result of all of that, you know, there, there's this unique appreciation I have for people in their theological journeys that I haven't always had, but I've, I've now adopted is an openness and an understanding to have compassion, especially for young Black Christians navigating a very complicated theological time and a very difficult, a difficult path of growth and journey. So that has given me a little bit of, of insight and helpful perspective to bring to those discussions. For sure. I mean, so I'm approaching this sort of collection of topics from my own experience in which there was like a time gap between the like hell slash universalism, Mm -hmm. violence in the old Testament, inerrancy kind (laughs) of, kind of season and, and early sort of LGBTQ question stuff. Mm -hmm. And then kind of like going both feet in on racial questions. Right. And I think that what's interesting is actually your experience is maybe better tailored to a young person today, white or black, working through deconstruction, because Mm -hmm. now since Trump, those things are all completely glued together Yes, because of our experience of the white evangelical church. For me, they were not glued together. I, I sort of did this stuff first. And, you know, I'm always thinking about it, but like, the real tumult around it had already gone through. And then now, okay, I'm a, I'm theologically liberal. Let's look at the race thing. Not like Mm -hmm. that's the reason I did, but that's how it happened to go in time. Right. And so that's cool. And so interesting that 
yeah, and like in that sense, I'm not like the ideal person to be helping with someone who's dealing with like 2022 deconstruction, you know? Yeah. And everyone's journey is unique. And I think there's elements of the deconstruction conversation being most prominent right now, but that it's going to swing back around at a certain point to other factors that I may not be as helpful in. I think it's going to swing to questions of ethics and, you know, technology and metaverse. And all these questions are, are kind of fastly approaching in the conversation and we've had some of them, but I think they're going to heighten over the next few years. And so it's going to kind of swing in a pendulum. But yeah, I, I, I do think that there is and, and there's so much I could go into about rooms I've been in that would shock people. Like, how did you get in this room? How are you there? Even if you if you track, I'll just say from my life, the three, quote unquote, big speaking engagements I had last year were over the map. So they were like Q ideas which is extremely conservative. Yeah. CCDA, which is liberal, community-based. And then Howard University Divinity School, which is black, right. you know, liberal, kind of a mix, but really kind of more liberation and theology. So, it, I, and I can speak in whatever space I need to speak in. Hell yeah. But that's, that's an encouraging thing, but it's also sometimes a little bit of a confusing thing. So it's a blessing and a burden because you're having to work through these, a lot of different questions. And I actually think that the 2022 helpful pastor to help people navigate deconstruction will have to be that agile. And I don't always do it well, but it's one thing I'm learning I have to do to be able to lead a church in a healthy way in 2022 is you have to be that agile and you have to be that flexible to admit you don't know everything, but also be willing to enter into some difficult conversations with a lot of compassion. Oh my gosh, Tyler, that you're, you're like, give the fact that you're currently a pastor saying that is giving me a little bit of hope Um, (laughs) because no, I mean the, the evangelicals evangelicalism from which I sprouted, you know, and, and I I've said this before on the show, but you don't know, like my own parents and even my church, my church was not that bad as far as things go. California evangelical in interdenominational church actually. But, you know, I had purity culture and I had, you right. know, all the four spiritual law stuff and a ton of, you know, street evangelism and the, oh, and the yeah. semi-problematic house building mission trips and, you know, yeah. and then certainly the kind of colorblind promise keepers shit. Oh, of course. You know, I had all that. I didn't have some of the even worse stuff that other people had. I didn't have anyone like telling me I was going to hell if I drank alcohol or, you know, I didn't have like (laughs) sort of the terrorizing stuff that some people have in, in more fundamentalist areas, but the, the broad white evangelical tradition from which I did Mm -hmm. come uh, and most, most listeners of the show probably came, you said flexibility and agility and admitting Mm -hmm. what you don't know. And it seems like the primary response by the big names in that world to this deconstruction phenomenon has been the opposite of those. We don't need to be agile. We actually know the biblical worldview Hmm. and you know, it's a, it's a fortress mentality. We have to, we got to kind of batten down the hatches and it seems to me like, Oh my gosh, like Gen Z is just not going to give a shit. They are going to be out. It's been wildly unhelpful. And I think it's been unhelpful because 
white evangelical spaces typically have a very underdeveloped theology of pain and lament, which is an obvious thing that people have talked about. But I think it's also frustrating because of how low the bar really is for people just to receive a glimmer of hope from the spaces that they have been taught to trust. It's a very low bar. And really all that's needed and necessary is an honest admission and an honest repentance. And people will find that not just hopeful, but they'll also typically reward that with continued presence. And the fact that white evangelicals have not seen the base level of pain and just leaped over one hurdle, the lowest bar, as we joke, you know, behind the scenes, you know, the bars in hell for white evangelicals. I mean, they could step over, they could just, they could bring someone up and just have a, a moment of repentance. Yeah. And they'd retain most of their black members just by having a moment of repentance or a solemn assembly or a, a commission that addresses their past or it, it's. <laughs> and, How many of their white members to, would they lose if they did that? Tyler? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and <laughs> that's the, the frustrating part. That's yeah. the frustrating part. Yeah, is of course. You can't yeah. see the decentering level. And so it's been wildly unhelpful. And those messages, um, which Bria Perry talks about a lot, those messages have been extremely harmful and have reinforced a lot of pain and eroded a lot of trust in the church. From your perspective, what do you think are the main causes of not doing those sort of even simpler kind of basic admissions of wrongdoing and seeking reconciliation of of some kind? Well, there's a lot of different reasons across the spectrum. When it comes to different issues, you'll get different responses and different roots for that response. When it comes to race, which I typically talk about the most and have the most experience in, I don't know how else to describe it other than a seemingly demonic stronghold that literally jumps out of white evangelical men whenever they are challenged to do better and be better on issues of race. And I use that language, which I know may, some people may find skeptical just simply because I'm a Pentecostal. So I've just, that's the only way, that's how I've been taught to speak of it. But it is, it is wild how much they do not want to lose an inch of control. Yeah. An inch of ground. And, you know, uh, Ibram Kendi has said that the heartbeat of racism is denial. And I flipped that to say, if the heartbeat of racism is denial, but drumbeat of racism is control, that the reason why racism continues to flourish and thrive within churches is not simply denial, but it's also control. And that is the gripping of power and kind of the root discipling of American white men, not just Christian, but American white men in, in our history from its the country's founding has been a discipleship of control. Our country has discipled white men to maintain power. It's what Willie Jennings calls the slave uh, paterfamilias. So he's like the, the literal making of slave masters is intrinsic within American culture. And so he compares it to the, and connects it to the making of white evangelical theological education is literally slave master theology. It is adopting a way of of crafting whoever it may be, male or female, black or white, or another person of color, 
crafting them to be slave master theologians. And it reinforces their power and it reinforces their control. When I, when I started talking about justice publicly in my local community, pastor sat across from me and said the wildest things to me that came out of nowhere in a first meeting. You know, that was a mockery to the gospel, that I was a community organizer. They didn't know anything about me, anything about my past, anything, and just wanted to have a, a meeting with me based upon something I had said. And at that time, I felt like I owed them an explanation, and now I do not. Yeah. But at that time, I felt like I owed them an explanation. And what came out of them, I said, this is, this is so much deeper. This is generational. And if there's such a thing as post-traumatic slave syndrome, where we can feel the pain of our ancestors generations back, then there must be something that connects them to, to long past people in their, in their family line and lineage who have been violent and violent racist. And they have, when you refuse to address and confront it, it will only compound itself over the course of time. So I feel like it's something so deep in the fabric of the country that makes it impossible for little sermon series and quoting a black person and you bring up your black, your one black pastor friend to speak during February's Black History Month and you doing a cute video for Juneteenth. That's not going to cut it. It's too deep for that. And I think Generation Z sees through that, especially yeah. black Christians. And we're not having it. Yeah. Yeah. As you shouldn't be for just from I don't know if you know that I'm training to be a psychologist, but uh, the <laughs> generational. Yeah, the the generational trauma stuff is really interesting, and the the research that's emerging around it is pretty compelling. I don't think that I don't like. I just want to be clear: like methodologically, psychologically, that doesn't necessarily imply that there is some similar thing for the people who inflict the trauma. Like you know, it's not the same mechanism. Oh, I understand yeah, you're being no, poetic. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But there is, but like there is a straight line, which is. What happens when the people who have what feels to them to be an increasingly tenuous control and sense of power over things when that gets threatened and that you don't need a lineage of slave owner, you know, PTSD or whatever to get that. You just need to be a human being who perceives that they have power slipping away and then yeah, whatever is absolutely. human will kick in, you know? Absolutely. No, I don't mean to say it's the same. Yeah. I'll just say that for us, especially in black spaces, we can't see anything else. Hmm. And when we interact with white evangelical pastors, typically middle-aged, my one of my mentors say white middle-aged pastors who are Enneagram eights, <laughs> which made me laugh. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it makes us feel like we're dealing with slave masters. Yeah. And we're like, why is it that y'all treat us the same way? And you're nicer and you wear better clothes and you pat us on the back and give us more opportunities and maybe pay us if we are at staff on your churches. And I know it's a hard thing for people to hear, but it's just it's 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 how so many of us look at the current white evangelical space. Yeah. Well, I think that the reason that I want to link it to maybe a more general psychological response is because the connection that I was going to draw is between racism and patriarchy and sexism. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I think that's extremely fair. I think they're coming from a very similar thing. I think there's a sense in which 
this type of theological education and this subculture of white evangelical pastor, leader, whatever, that kind of group, I think that they, what they ultimately believe about women is that God wants a benevolent patriarchy, Mm. that God wants them to be in power, but to do it really kindly, like Jesus would do it or something like that. And the, you know, if you actually knew all the facts and you could do that, then I can see a world in which, you know, like a, like a, a wise and just ruler who doesn't let other people rule the country, but like does a good job. The problem is that the, the benevolent patriarchy or the benevolent white supremacy ignores all the gnawing uncertainty around the edges. It ignores the fact that it's based on particular foundational claims and beliefs, theological, social, whatever that shift and that, that like brilliant people disagree on and loving people disagree on. And so that to me is ultimately where it fails is like, even if you're right, that you're just trying to use the power well, exempting the fact that a ton of people are not using the power well, but even if you are, how do you know you're right? Like, what argument can you marshal? And there isn't really one except to say, well, we all agree that this is a biblical worldview, don't we guys? You know, and it's like, I'll just quote J.I. Packer at you. I'll just quote C.S. Lewis. I'll just quote (laughs) these people. Well, how do you know they were right? Like, it's, you know what I mean? That's not, that's helpful. That's extremely helpful. I I think that's a, a very intriguing connection that I haven't necessarily, I've obviously seen the line obviously drawn between racism and patriarchy. Yeah. But that particular line, I think is a helpful addition to my uh, vocabulary and how I talk about it. I'm just trying to think it might, J.I. Packer might be, oh yeah, he's Calvinist. Okay. I think it's the guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, J.I. Packer. Yeah. Knowing God. Oh man. I got a whole, I had a whole Calvinist phase too, man. You know what I'm saying? So we we could, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast, but yes, (laughs) I know all those guys. (laughs) If, if atonement and all that stuff comes up, then great. So, okay. I want to, I want to pivot sort of purposefully toward deconstruction in black versus white spaces. So just, just broadly, like, Based on your experience, and it's cool you you have had this experience sort of spanning these different worlds, including those the kind of mixed spaces. What do you think are the main differences? Like compare and contrast the deconstruction that you mo- you see in predominantly white spaces with predominantly black spaces. That's a great question. I think the first thing I would say that's overarching is black Christians don't think of deconstruction. I should say this, historically, Black Christians have not thought of deconstruction as deconstruction. They've thought of it as faith. (laughs) So we we have by nature had to deconstruct white evangelical and white dominant Christian uh, or Protestant spaces because of, of survival, right? So this goes all the way back to slave times when they would have church, quote unquote, at the plantation, the, the the slave master or someone connected to his family would give a sermon about slaves being obedient to their masters, et cetera. Yeah. And then Black Christians or, or Black uh, enslaved Africans would go to hush arbors and grove trees, and they would have their own gathering in private and in secret, right? So they were literally taking, and they would preach liberation <laughs> in private, away from where the slave master could see 
because all of their official churches, uh, church, quote unquote, church services and gatherings would have to be supervised by a white man. And so, (laughs) right. So, so they would literally de quote unquote, deconstruct what the slave master said. Yeah. But they wouldn't call it that. They would just call it authentic faith. Right. Because that's obviously bullshit. <laughs> and exactly. like, so we're going to do so that's something. The hist- ex- and that's, and so that's my, the encouraging part of deconstruction, which is, no, this is actually extremely helpful because this is what black Christians have done yeah. since the inception of faith within this country, since we were brought over from on slave ships. Like that's what we have done. Some of the differences I think would probably be in, angles. So what I've seen personally, I I don't want to be unfair in this because I have so, so, so much compassion. And really, I learned so much from my white friends who are, I learned so much from them and who are officially a part of what they would call a deconstruction movement or ex-evangelical movement or what have you. I just learned so much. What I have typically seen is that they tend to do it a little bit, just in, in my local experience, in isolation, So they tend to do it a little in isolation. Black deconstruction tends to be a little bit more communal. So it tends to kind of connect to a broader community of some sort. And it also tends to be done with other people alongside. So this is why one of the things you'll see, which you may not necessarily even call this deconstruction is per se. But if you take, for example, a very radical black Hebrew Israelite group, right? One of the things that they offer is community and family with which to unlearn all the things that that evil black church, which is influenced by white Jesus has taught you. So they'll literally offer you community and family to figure that out versus like pulling you to the side and be like, yeah. And then leaving, you. no, you, it's like, it's like a, a gang, <laughs> like it's like a squad, and so you roll, not online, in person, you roll together and you try to. And so I've seen that in even the Nation of Islam, which would do tons of, quote unquote, deconstruction in evangelical movements. But the Nation of Islam would do tons of deconstruction in, you know, against white evangelical or Christian spaces. But they would do it within the context of bringing you into a community because they connect it to something about your origin. The Black Israelites connect it to something about your origin you know, five percenters in comedic science, they connect it to something about your origin. There's something about you that has to be unlocked through this process. And it's not where you end up feeling or landing. It's more about the family that you can be a part of. And so for, for me, I've just seen so much communal emphasis in deconstruction in black spaces. And I've seen a little bit more isolated, kind of more individual uh, language being used in white spaces. And that's not to say it's it's always individual, but that's just what I've seen. That's one of the, I guess I could say two of the big differences there. That's fascinating. So the the individual versus communal thing, my first thought is just as someone undergoing psychological training is, you know, that it's the kind of thing I should have thought of, but didn't that like basically, you know, white European American cultures are as individualistic as it gets. Yes. In the world, <laughs> yes. in the whole world and maybe the yes. history of the whole world. And every other culture essentially is more communal, less individualistic. Right. And so that shouldn't be surprising, I guess, that like yeah. that that process would be different. But but Dan, I also say this is why you'll see a, pre- a more precipitous pr- percentage drop 
which isn't to say that the black church attendance and Gen Z millennials isn't declining. It is. You know, Barna talks about this in the state of the black church. It is decline. It's not declining as quickly as other groups. Right. Or it's not declining as quick as quickly, I should say, as white evangelical Christian groups. Yeah. And so because it's hard to break even people who think the church is wilding, even people who are like, I'm ex-evangelical, you turn on some gospel music, see how they react. <laughs> because there is a communal that like it's in our bone. And they'll even say it, man, I uh man, that early 2000s Fred Hammond album, that Kurt Franklin hero album, they'll talk about an experience that's in their bones that connects them to something greater. So even if they don't agree with the doctrine, they'll say like, man, there's something about this. So we yearn for community and there's so much in our culture and in our particular community that is built upon it. That is also kind of how people deconstruct. I will say in a time of COVID and all kinds of other stuff, it's not it's probably not going to stay that way. And our percentages will probably catch up with white evangelical percentages in terms of mm. decline from the church. Um, so it's not going to stay that way because of some deep seated misogynoir and other things within our community. But it's what I've experienced. What I've experienced is, oh, people are, man, they, it's not, a, it's not because of one issue like that. It's typically a community grabs them and says, examine everything. And then our community says, don't question anything. <laughs> That's how the, so you got the pastor saying, don't question anything. You got another guy says, examine everything. And he's like, yo, this guy makes sense. Why am I not asking questions? Why am I not allowed to ask questions? And they enter into a different community and then yeah. do the deconstruction together. Yeah, it's super fascinating. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. Patrons get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, an awesome online community. Facebook is not, you know, maybe the best uh, service to be supporting or whatever, but it is a very functional uh, clearinghouse meeting place uh, for hundreds of listeners of this show. So you get access to that as a patron. You also get at least two exclusive episodes per month. Most recently, I talked with my friend Lindsay Stranigan about her story of moving from evangelicalism in which she was raised to eventually finding a home in the Episcopal Church and a particular church she loves in Portland. Um, and coming up this month, we've got another uh, episode uh, going through the Gospels with Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible as well as, I believe, another Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and Josh Gilbert, our editor and producer. So if you're interested, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. And back to the episode. So where I was going to go with it is that a big difference between, especially in evangelicalism, white Americans and black Americans, is that we are, and this is, there's been obviously incredible sort of scholarship about this and, and public conversation recently, you know, as, as white Christians, non-Catholics, we are basically socialized to think that we have the default culture. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And definitely. so if you start questioning that, it's not like, like when you're talking about how, okay, so these like radical, you know, black Hebrew Israelite 
denominations or whatever or groups like, well, let's appeal to their Africanness or let's appeal to, you know, cultural distinctions or something like what are people like, what are they going to appeal to me about? Right. Now, I think people who identify as queer, um, yes. maybe like maybe for women, even like a more of a feminist kind of take on things. But as like a white male, if I dismantle the idea that white males are normal and normative, it's not like it's not obvious that I could go. So like who's going to offer me some competing message? I just got to right. get off the throne, you know, like and then exactly. look around. Exactly. That's a great point. And that's yes. And I think that's why. And I think it's also why I think you have a lot more black Christians now who are feeling even empowered to speak about this because here's, I've seen black Christians hop from church community into a whole different community very quickly. Hmm. Like, and they'll hop from a community into a community that's just deconstructing that they've made for themselves. And to be honest, in a weird sense, it's kind of the witness has kind of been that as well. It's kind of been a space for us to ask some hard questions, re-examine some things. We talk about leaving loud. We talk about these things that will be closely tied to and people would assume are just evangelical movements while we're still in the church, which is dangerous, but at the same time has been extremely fruitful for us. And we've seen a ton of benefit from us doing it. But I've seen Black Christians hop from the communities real quick and they'll always find the community. And that's the number one thing I'll hear. If, if Black Christians are deconstructing, they're going to yearn for community. They're going to yearn for African, you know, Black power type community, and they're going to find it somehow, or they're going to create it. Or and, and here's what's so interesting. And a couple of my friends that I won't mention, but a couple of my friends who have released books, I feel like they've created their own communities because none existed. Hmm. So they were like, OK, we're just going to create our own. <laughs> you know, and they've, and it's just so fascinating to see how quickly that works and how, how the appeals work as well. But then if you go into white even just, I, it's, it makes some of these conversations for me very difficult and very frustrating because I don't know what to appeal to. Like, what do I say to you? I was talking at an Episcopal church recently and someone asked a question. I was just like, yeah, I, I don't know how to, <laughs> I, told him, I, said, I don't even know how to handle it. Yeah. You know, Cause these are older white Episcopal men. And they were very, they, it was, it was a very good gathering and it was, but there was one particular question. I was like, man, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And I don't even know how to navigate around this. Cause what am I going to appeal to in your particular space? And so that really puts to words a lot of how my interactions with even my white male friends and how a lot of that has changed me saying, what do I even say to this? Like you like James White and Doug Wilson and you're friends with me? after what they said about us, how does that work? What do I, I can't even appeal to friendship to you to let your white male idols go. How, how does this work? You know, I just, and so it makes me, it, it, it makes my skin crawl sometimes, but that really also brings to light a lot of the explanation as to why I haven't been able to, to get them to come to their senses. Hmm. It, I also think that like you're saying that a black Christian going through deconstruction it will happen sort of in a group with other people and it, it will be a communal sort of exodus and they will find another group immediately as soon as they can. And they're going to really thirst for that group. I think that there's something more honest about that than the way that we narrate it 
in the in the predominant culture, which is that the way we narrate it is that well, and you know people people tell their stories the way however they're going to tell them, but there's a version like a. I don't know what to call it. It's like a, a par excellence version, which is like, oh, these counter arguments started gnawing at me in my own mind. And I, I related that to my experience or this one person in my life that I love came out as gay or, or whatever. But like actually what people believe is by and large predictable based on what the people around them believe. Right. And like, that's how we are as humans, really. And I kind of like the idea of like, hey, if you fuck up, you're going to lose this whole chunk of people who are going to yes. move together. It's it's more yeah. honest. I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with yeah. that. I just wanted to no, throw it that's, out there. That's really, uh, that's really perceptive. And it's also why a lot of black Christians will still, even if they're deconstructing, or even black people, even if they're deconstructing, will stay in faith spaces. Mm-hmm. Like they won't leave quickly. So it takes a lot for someone based upon intellectual reasons, just pure intellectual. You can't answer my questions to leave a community. Like Hmm. I've had, I've seen, I've seen some black Christians who are Mensa level smart, stay under pastors that could not answer any of their questions. (laughs) Couldn't answer a lick of them. And they absolutely just love, they just love the community. Yeah. They don't move on quickly from the community. They see value in the community and they see intangible value, not just in intellectual cognitive answers, but in the embodiment of who they are as a people and as a family and as one of us. So a lot of times it'll be different. And I've seen a lot of white Christians hop very quickly. And I'm like, man, that's really fascinating to me how quickly this moves. That's really fascinating to me how quickly you jump and, ex- and and jump from thing to thing and then keep kind of raising the bar with what's acceptable and who you'll be around. And I don't criticize it to say it's wrong because I feel like they may see some things I don't. I just say that's very fascinating to me because me and my friends, even if they think the church, even people, some people on the witness, even if they think the church has is just lost its mind, even the black church, they'll still go to black churches. Why is that? It makes me think, though, that like there's a real tension here that I don't know how to resolve. I wonder if especially white Christians or former Christians who are sociopolitically progressive, I think that they often get the sense of like, you know what? This church is doing active harm. And once you once you realize once you have that thought, you know, at that point, it might be kind of a virtue to not have to wait for all your friends. Like, you know, like there might be times where we would think that's good that you can just get up and leave. And I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I haven't super been following the leave loudly sort of campaign stuff. So correct me if I'm, you know, if I'm misattributing this, but like over racism in white churches over, you know, an inability to even talk about the thing that everyone else is talking about in any kind of honest way. Like if that's a good enough reason to leave, then is treatment of LGBTQ people a reason? Is not ordaining women a good enough reason? You know, where does that line become, okay, it's time to vote with your feet and to do it in sort of ways that are not easily taken back so that people will see the consequences. You know, it's, I don't know. Yeah. And, and for us, if you listen to our stories, 
all three of the main stories that we told, mine, Jamar's, and Ali's, it took years for us to get to that point to where we would say, oh, this is for us to, this is too much. Yeah. Like we've tried everything that we can try. And that could be a function of growing up and being acculturized in a space where you, you naturally think white is right and you naturally want to make it work because you yearn for not having to be an antagonist in spaces that should receive you fully. Yeah. Right. So it could be part of our cultural upbringing that makes us acquiesce more. But even that, even that definition, like what you said, which I think is absolutely fair. And I think where churches are active harm, I have seen the definition of what active harm is be up to interpretation. Oh, totally. Like what, like, what does that mean for certain groups? What does that mean for other groups? What does that mean? But I think, no, it's, it's 100% legitimate, but it's also one of the things that we're going to have to constantly wrestle with. As you mentioned, this tension you can't resolve, like how much is too much? You know, do you go to a non-affirming church? Do you go to a church that's, you know, complementarian, even softly complementarian? Do you go? And so those are the questions that I have a lot of compassion for people as they wrestle with, because that's something that is uh, definitely a tension that makes sense to me. We went to a non-affirming complementarian church, even though it was it was soft complementarian, and within its within its world, it was pushing the boundaries. It wasn't right, PCA church. Right. I think they're now leaving the PCA. It was pushing those boundaries with women, deacons, and stuff, and it was pushing for more progressive stuff around race within the denomination. But we stayed in it for ten years. A line for me was, okay, I'm not going to raise my kids in a complimentary church. Like, (laughs) I don't want them, you know, like, so, but that's like, but what if I didn't have kids or what if my kids are in college? Then I'm, you know, so there's people have to navigate all kinds of things. That's a great point. It's great. So I know listeners to this show know all the main topics that white people tend to deconstruct about. Like, what are the instigating sort of topics and all that stuff? I want to just hear from you, like, mm. what are the main topics or experiences or lenses or whatever when your black friends are deconstructing? What do, what do you tend to see? That's a great question. It'd definitely be politics. Politics is major. Even my most, even the people who would agree with me on race as black Christians and agree with some of my stances, the presence of systemic racism, the virulence of systemic racism, but would even stay in white churches and justify it. Get absolutely there. Whenever you start getting into Christian nationalism, they revolt, something in them recoils. So anything related to Christian nationalism and the merger of America, the God talk, uh, America talk, that's a huge thing that will get you deconstructing in black spaces. So it just made me laugh whenever pastors really leaned into it. I'm like, oh, it's going to be a mass exodus. You just have no idea. Because that's a line crosser for so many Black Christians, because that makes them think they're unsafe. And they are unsafe if they're in that space. Yeah, it's like the... (laughs) The 100 percent You guys have literally, like, in your DNA methylation, to use the uh, ancestral or generational trauma language... You, you have the proof against the God and country yep. thesis. I mean, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. It's overwhelming proof. And that's, don't, so that's number yeah. one. The politics thing will get you obviously race. And, but I'll say 
one thing that I'm noticing a little bit more is church as business. That, that the way in which the church has shifted from family and community to business is something that triggers deconstruction for Black Christians, precisely because we mm. yearn for community so much that we can tell when it's, it starts looking like monopoly. Like we can tell when it starts looking like, oh, you're, this is a, you're selling a product. Like I'm on a sales journey. Like, oh, you're, you're, you're using me. Like I'm a cog in a wheel. No, that will trigger a deconstruction very quickly for Black Christians. So church has, if church gets progressively more and more business modelish, you'll see a lot of Black Christians that step away from that, even subtly, even subtly, because we know what it's like, I think, to feel used and to feel like we're being taken on something that is not ultimately leading to anything but the propping up of the institution itself. And so especially with more anti-institutionalism with Gen Z millennials, I think now that church as a business whole model is really messing with a lot of black Christians. It'll trigger the deconstruction process. Now I'm super ignorant on this, but I, I know there is also kind of like a prosperity gospel sure. yeah. or prosperity gospel adjacent, like TD Jakes maybe. And like, uh, I know there's like that. That's not primarily the black church you're talking about, right? Or is it? That's a tricky question. Because because there I would just wonder if it if that was a little blurrier because it is fundamentally about, you know, economic well-being. And you're you are actively selling that kind of image in any prosperity gospel church. It, it It's tricky. Some people would consider T, a lot of people consider T.D. Jakes prosperity gospel. We would, yeah, and I don't know that I don't know if he is. I just I I've heard his name associated oh, with yeah, it, yeah. and even kind of with an asterisk before. Some people have said no, they label him that to get him out of these white spaces, you know, because that's how you know. So then he'll be a pariah. I just mean that there is some sort of world that I'm dimly aware of that's yeah. like sort of prosperity gospel. And, and, yeah. and that the reason I brought that up is because it's so that makes the conversation so tricky and complex because right. you're touching on something that is true. And that's the mega church model, which I have been a part of and has been in my house. So it's 5,000 members every weekend, you know, yeah, in Pensacola, Florida. So that's not like a huge market, yeah. but that model the reason it triggers deconstruction, and it's good that you bring this up for a lot of Black Christians, is because we ask the question, where could that money be going to uplift our community? Mm-hmm. So the purpose of church is, oh, we give millions of dollars in tithes and offerings every year, and we add on these facilities, the pastor seems to be benefiting. And so it starts to make people feel like this is MLM. Now, what is true, that that's typically, if you're from the outside looking in, you'll think that. Typically, what is true of Black churches, to their credit, is they're very community-involved and oriented. They just don't typically advertise it. But it still asks the question, what's the ratio of money that's going to the church versus going to the community? And does this help those who are the least of these? And so our theology, if our theology is justice, 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 but we go to a church that does not practically uplift the community in its zip code, in its neighborhood. We ask the question, this doesn't make any sense. And is there something fundamentally wrong with what we're believing in that causes a church to operate so sparingly in uplift and equity and justice, even though we talk the justice game when we're talking about white Christians? 
Hmm. Well, I got it. I have a handful of things I really want to ask you about. So I'm going to move kind of quickly here with our last 15, 20 minutes. Let's do it. So you had that interesting experience with Carlton Pearson yeah. and thinking about universal reconciliation as opposed to hell and eternal conscious torment. And, you know, you went to Liberty, which I don't know how many people were deconstructing when you were there, but that is more the kind of like, you know, inerrancy questions and right. violence in the Old Testament. You know, the, these kind of more, in scare quotes, cerebral type of th- strictly theological, again, in in air quotes, because, um, of course, it isn't. But the kind of stuff that most deconstruction podcast hosts start talking about. <laughs> yeah, My first yeah. episode was about salvation. Num- number four was atonement. You know, these kind of things. Is that less of a thing in the black church? If so, why do you think that's the case? You know, et cetera. There are cerebral questions, but most of the cerebral questions are triggered by experiential trauma. Hmm. So the church doesn't, and there's a sexual abuse issue and sexual misconduct issue in the black church, right? I don't want to generalize it to make it seem like it's all black churches or majority black, but there's a, there's an issue there that doesn't often get talked about. And that's, Hey, my youth pastor tried to groom me. Then that's what that will trigger skepticism, which will then lead to cerebral questions, but it's typically experiential. It's typically just doesn't come out of Oh, well, how do we even know? How do we know this is real? How do we know? There's something that triggers skepticism that's typically connected to an experience, which is why you'll see Black Christians will go to white churches and will be all about those white churches. You'll be like, how are you there? Because, because they're like, oh, it's, they treat me great. <laughs> like they'll always point to experience. They treat me great. But if, you, if there's a bad experience, that'll lead to the, the questioning, the skepticism of everything. And so it's it's rarely the philosophical, and even Carlton Pearson, it wasn't just it was not yeah just philosophical. There was a, an experience that happened that wasn't really even talked about in Come Sunday, but there was an there were experiences that happened to him personally that made him question whether or not what he was preaching and, and teaching was one hundred percent real and legitimate, or if he had been teaching it wrong the whole time, but it was experiential that led him to ask some of the cerebral questions. So I think we do talk about the cerebral, but I think it's just, it's in the experience where it's triggered. Well, it's interesting you say triggered by trauma, because I think for me, ultimately my deconstruction did start quick math, eight, 10 years earlier. My story, which listeners have heard a lot of times is that I was traumatized by end times teaching when I was in sixth grade yeah. and then through high school. And, oh, man. and like, I was an anxious kid. I already had what I would now call panic disorder and it triggered it bad. The most panic attacks I've had about one topic in my life cumulatively are around end times, you know, prophecies and, and all that stuff. And so that eventually led to me then reading more about that. And then, okay, well, that leads to this book and this book and that book. And, and, you know, so it did, it started, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have told you then that it was what started it though. I would have told you that, well, hell doesn't really make sense. And, and honestly, I don't think I ever really believed my friends were going to hell. You know, you, you can look back and kind of test those things and did I really believe that? And I don't know that I ever did, but it was triggered. I mean, I think for most people, there's got to be some experiential element that triggers it, yes. right? Absolutely. I think that is typically what will happen. I think 
there is such an immersion in the black church that is a holistic immersion. And that's why you can have someone like John Legend, who's not a part of the black church now to be a voice in the black church documentary on PBS. You're like, how is this possible? Like he hasn't been to a black church in his entire adulthood, but he's a voice because there's such a cultural immersion that it's a particular level of betrayal Mm. when there's an experience that's even not even necessarily as serious as like a sexual abuse or just anything that would be considered the eroding of trust can trigger someone to start asking questions about, and it's very leader led, like top down hierarchy in the black church. Right. And so that leader ledness can make people question some things quicker even because they're like, wait a second, well, I saw the leader doing this, or I think the, the leader says this, but then does that. And then it's like, well, wait a second. And then I ask other cerebral intellectual questions that if the leader can't answer them, and typically even if they can't, but the leader can't answer well with compassion leads to a, a spiraling. Yeah. Well, the last thing I, I want to talk about is just the national conversation around faith deconstruction. I mean, the, the term has gone fully mainstream within Protestantism in America in a way that I never would have thought, I wouldn't have even thought it when I started my first deconstruction podcast in 2016, I wouldn't have thought it would have gotten this sort of, I wouldn't see it on Twitter so often. I wouldn't see headlines about it. Right. I know where I'm watching it from, which is a white dude who started deconstructing, I don't know, 18 years ago in college and has been kind of part of this, you know, subculture for a while. Where are you watching that from? Like, how would you, how would you sort of describe that? What's your angle on it? And what are you seeing in, like, what are you picking up in this coverage? What's it making you think about? Wow. Such a good question. You know, Dan, I'm watching faith deconstruction from the lens of a Southern pastor's kid who knows for a fact that the church in America has been uncritical of itself and harmful and refuses to repent. And I am looking at this, and I mean this so seriously, and it does, and sometimes people don't understand this. I mean this so seriously. I completely understand why people want nothing to do with us. I completely get it. It's so funny, Dan, today, today, I was on a plane and I landed, I was sitting next to a guy the entire time. We landed and then he leans over to me as we're taxiing to the uh, gate. He looks down at it and I saw a gospel track. He leans over and gives me this gospel track, tells me there's some verses I'd probably like to read all this. And, and I just shook my head. I just said, yeah, thanks. And he was actually speaking tonight at my brother and sister's school, which I attended for two years. He has no idea I was an alumni. He has no idea I'm a pastor. He has no idea. Didn't, didn't ask my name. And I'm like, what the hell do you think you just did? Yeah, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's no. the right question. Like, yeah. what, like, what the hell do you think you just did? You, you really think you did something? You assumed I was a wretch because I have dreadlocks and a beard and I was wearing a hoodie and you just wanted to, you didn't, you didn't do it for the guy who was sitting on the other side of you. You did it for me. Hmm. And we don't look the same. And you just assumed and you thought you were doing something. And so 
I, I speak very candidly and raw because yeah, I am not interested. I am very invested as a pastor in the preservation of what I consider to be the healthy, expansive Black Christian tradition. It's what Jamar and I talk a lot about, which is not simply the Black church, quote unquote. It includes the Black church as people have understood it. It also includes Black faith activists in the public square, your Fannie Lou Hamers, your Ida B. Wells, et cetera. And then uh, Bree Newsom would be modern uh, iteration of this, Bernice King. And then also Black Christians who are who are in white evangelical or white mainline spaces, the expansive Black Christian tradition. I am heavily invested in that. That's a work we do at The Witness. But I am very sensitive to the fact that we have bungled this deconstruction conversation in white and Black churches. And I am, I just want to, every time I hear deconstruction, I'm like, man, I want to learn so much more. And it's led me down this journey of listening to voices who are actively going through it. And even if I don't land where they land and end up where they end up, it makes my heart hurt to think that when they hear pastor, they wince. When they hear preacher, they cringe. When they hear church, they're triggered. And there's a physical response. And I just want us to do this a lot better for Gen Z. And if that means that we have to uproot a generation of pastors who have been extremely unhelpful and stubborn and prideful and can't see past their own hype, then that's what we have to do. And if that means our understanding of church and even Black church, uh, which I think has tremendous power and is a beacon of light and hope, but if our understanding of church, even in the Black context, shifts and change, it probably needed to, you know, and, and we have to get, if that means we have to get back to the drawing board and reconstruct something that is healthy and that considers all the things that we have failed in and the opportunities we've missed because of the people we've excluded, let's do that. But I am coming at it from the lens of, I'm not so much concerned about defending the institution because the institution has been wrong. I trust the God of the institution. I know not everyone's there, but I trust the God of the institution. Yet the institution has been so painfully wrong that I just have a lot of compassion. I want to learn a lot more. And I want to listen a lot more than I talk. And I want to talk with, not at. And that's what's moved me most about the deconstruction conversation. And yeah, I see the Black church having a huge leadership gap. COVID-19 over the past two years took out so many of our Black Christian leaders. I see this massive leadership gap in the Black church. And I said, if we don't get deconstruction right in terms of how we listen and love and care for, the Black church is going to erode rapidly. And they're going to be your, your big mega church pastors in your really, really, really small churches. And that's pretty much it. And that's not so much about the institution as it is about the people who can be helped and given hope as a result of the institution in its healthiest form. That's what I think about. Tyler, what a fantastic conversation. Your agility, your wanting to be flexible in that way while being a pastor currently serving uh, has me feeling optimistic this evening. I've obviously, I've mentioned past the mic podcast. There'll be a link to that and the witness 
uh, Black Christian Collective in the show notes. Anywhere else you'd like to point people? Nah, that's it, man. I will put a word in, and I'm saying this as someone who does not have a personal book out, but read Black authors, support Black authors. There's some tremendous books that are out that are diving into these uh, topics and having these conversations from a Black Christian perspective. And um, whether that's Jamar Tisby, I, I hate mentioning names because I know I'm going to forget some people, but Dante Stewart, Cole Riley, Truce Table's coming out with a book, Ali Henney's coming out with a book. There are just so many tremendous authors that have been doing this from womanists to liberation theologians to people asking these very basic um, but probing questions about what do we actually believe and is it viable for now? Read Black authors, listen to Black voices, and I think you'll you'll have spent your time and your money well. Hey, man. Thanks, man. Thank you, Dan. This has been amazing. I've learned so much. <laughs>